Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew 27. We want to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning in our study as we continue to work our way through the book of Matthew. We are on message number 106, okay? I think we'll have about, I don't know, 115 or so by the time it's all said and done here. But uh, the death of Judas this morning, uh, Matthew 27, 1 through 10. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that's profitable for us as a people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll note on the overhead an outline of the book of Matthew. The theme is Christ the King, and we are down in that section in chapters 26 and 27, uh, the passion of the King. In our study of Matthew, we are in the immediate shadow of the cross. Christ is on trial, falsely accused with the design of having Jesus killed uh, in the hearts of the religious leaders. And two other players that loom large in this narrative are Peter and Judas. Peter being loyal with a sincere faith, but weak, denied the Lord three times, but then was broken in repentance and restored. Judas, on the other hand, had no faith. And in a cold, calculated manner, betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave in the Old Testament. Well, Matthew presents Peter's denials and what became of Judas the betrayer back to back, so as really, in effect, to present a contrast. Peter's denials were based on human weakness. While the betrayal of Judas was cold, calculated, premeditated depravity given over to Satan. We pick it up, verse 1, Matthew 27, verse 1. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. This is the third trial, the third religious trial. The first two were essentially illegal, being carried on in the middle of the night, which according to their own rules was illegal. Uh, The decision had already been made, however, that Jesus was to be put to death. That's what the the penalty called for in their minds, uh, his uh, profession to be the Christ. So the decision had already been made to put Jesus forth to the Romans for capital punishment. Now they just needed to ratify it formally and officially in the light of day, uh, make it uh, official. Uh, which was required by their law. Even so, even here, they were not consistent with their own laws, which required at least a one-day waiting period before executing the death penalty, so as to allow feelings of mercy to rise and be considered. Well, there was none of that here. Uh, Note here, as far as the um, trials, as I say, uh, we're here on the third... uh, This is the third trial. We've got three Jewish trials... First, Annas, uh, Caiaphas, and now the Sanhedrin. And then they will present him to uh, the Gentiles. There's three trials there as well. Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. But here's where we are in our study uh, today. All the chief priests and elders of the people indicates that this was a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That is the Supreme Court in Israel. And note they were, quote, plotting. They were plotting against Jesus to put him to death. Now, they had, as I say, already agreed amongst themselves that he should die on the charge of blasphemy for claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, as we saw back in verse 63. 
However, there's a little sticking point here. You see, Rome had to agree to the death penalty. And in order for Rome to legitimize the death penalty, there had to be some charge that would make Jesus an enemy of the state. Rome didn't care about their religious squabbles. (laughs) That didn't matter to them at all. So they needed something that smacked of treason, uh, which Rome would not stand for. And so they camped on the fact that in professing to be the Messiah, and they're right here, in professing to be the Messiah, he was claiming to be a king. The Messiah was certainly to be the king. Everywhere the prophecies bring that out. So this was always the issue in the background ever since Jesus was uh, born. Uh, You know what uh, Herod's concern was, right, in Matthew chapter 2? What, tell me about this one that is born king of the Jews. Where is he to be born? Oh, we know, the prophet Micah told us. And so we see, ever since the very beginning, uh, this is in the background of who Jesus is as the king. Well, we see Pilate making this the issue. As what did he hang as far as the, the signage over the cross? Well, he wrote there, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. This is what happens in Rome when you declare yourself to be a king. We put you on a cross. Because we all know there's only one king in Rome. And that's Caesar. Nobody defies Caesar by claiming to be a king. You can't do that. So that's what, uh, that was the official charge that stuck in the minds of Rome. And uh, really, I think with this signage, uh, Pilate uh, sought to rub it in the Jews' face. Here's your king. We put him on a cross. Well, as seen in Luke 23, 2, they ended up really with three formal charges that they presented to Rome, which they argued uh, collectively, certainly, called for the death penalty. And we read about this, Luke chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, One, we have found this fellow perverting the nation. Two, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. That's a really serious one, you know. And number three, saying that he himself is Christ a king. So we have really three issues. They're saying he's a rebel rouser. uh, He is forbidding to pay taxes. And he is claiming to be a king. Now those were serious charges as far as Rome is concerned, if they were legitimate. Uh, They were considered to be a threat to Caesar. And any threat to Caesar was to be immediately put down in the strongest of terms. But note, Pilate knew their real motivation. I mean, Pilate knew what was going on here. And he knew why they were seeking the death penalty. We know this because of what the scripture says, as we will read ahead just a little bit here in verse 18. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew the dynamics of really kind of what's going on here. So he knew their game and what they were up to. But apparently he felt forced to play along because of the politics involved, as we will see as we continue on in our study. Verse 2. They plotted, they came up with this uh, game plan. Here's the charges we're officially presenting to Rome. And verse 2 says, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, Pilate was the appointed governor from A.D. 26 to 36. Now, he normally lived in Caesarea, Maritime on the coast. 
But during the Jewish feasts, he often came to Jerusalem to ensure that the peace was kept and that the Jews did not get out of hand. He was responsible, you see, to Rome to keep the peace. To keep the peace was very important in the Roman Empire. And so uh, just to note the map here as far as uh, where he was, uh, he lived up here, uh, Caesarea, but now he's uh, made the trip down here to Jerusalem. So pretty, you know, he's, he liked this view here of all the Mediterranean Sea, I'm sure. But now he's uh, made his way down here to Jerusalem for the feast. Uh, Pontius was the family name, and uh, Pilate hated the Jews. You see, he started his rule by bringing flags with the, with the emperor's portrait into Jerusalem. Now, that didn't set well. Uh, the Jews considered this to be idolatrous, in effect. Uh, that caused an uproar. Then he proceeded to take money from the treasury of the temple to build an aqueduct system that would supply water to Jerusalem. Now, when the Jews protested, he had his soldiers club and bludgeon many of them to death. Thus, the Jews hated Pilate. And he hated them. The feeling was mutual. Earlier, the Jews had sent a formal complaint concerning another matter to uh, Tiberius, the current Caesar. And because of that, uh, Pilate had been severely rebuked by the emperor. I mean severely. So Pilate felt some pressure. You know, the Jews just kind of went right over his head to Caesar and complained, and it got some traction. So Pilate felt pressure uh, to appease these Jewish leaders, lest they once again go over his head and complain to the emperor. Felt some pressure here, some political pressure. So Pilate hated the Jews, but felt political pressure to get along. The Jews did not have the authority to apply the death penalty, so they came to Pilate demanding that he carry it out. And in so doing, they really uh, pitted allegiance to Caesar against the claims of Christ. If you're going to let this go, it's going to mean you're unfaithful to Caesar. Ooh, there's pressure there! Notice what we read in John chapter 18. Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. I don't want to deal with this. You, you judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Here's our problem. We want the death penalty, and we can't do it. Chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Boy, they push this right in his face hard. So these Jewish religious leaders were very savvy. And they had Pilate painted into a corner. And they were not going to let him out unless he did what they wanted. So in effect, Pilate went along kicking and screaming, but giving them what they wanted, lest he get into further trouble with Caesar. Verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. This response of Judas is really kind of amazing. I mean, what did he think was going to happen? <clears throat> you see, the problem with Judas was he was a lover of money. 
He was in charge of the money box. Uh, He was kind of like the treasurer of the group. And uh, the Bible says in John 12 that he regularly stole from the money box. And for this reason, he threw a fit when Mary anointed Jesus with very expensive oil, complaining that it could have been sold for a good profit and given to the poor. And then it says, not that he cared a lick for the poor, but that he was thinking, man, I could have helped myself to some of these, uh, these funds. Now, the Bible is very clear <clears throat> that uh, love of money is not a good thing. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jesus was very clear that no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money, Matthew 6, 24. Uh, something's going to be Lord. Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be money? You see, Judas had a wrong God here. Jesus was not his Lord. It was his money. It was money. He was a lover of money. And really, money was his God. Now, the name Judas is synonymous with betrayer. And betrayal is such an ugly thing. Ever been betrayed? It's ugly. And this is consistently how Judas is portrayed and described. He was the betrayer. And he did it all for a few shekels, a few silver coins. Now, Judas uh, Judas watched the proceedings, evidently from a distance, as did Peter. Uh, You'll wonder if they were both in the same courtyard. Uh, But when he saw that they had condemned Jesus to die, he felt remorse. It is surmised that perhaps Judas thought Jesus would once again escape from their clutches, as he had so often done before. And you remember, Judas was undoubtedly present with Jesus when he had been really uh, put into a, how's he going to get out of it? And then he'd get out of it, like Houdini. (laughs) Only much greater than Houdini. Uh, But note uh, in Luke chapter 4, This is back at his hometown, uh, and he said some things they didn't like in the service, right? I mean, it's always dangerous to be, you know, preaching to an audience that doesn't want to hear what you're saying. Uh, Verse uh, 28, Luke 4, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Rose up, thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then... Passing through the midst of them. I wonder how, I wonder, you know, we just think, just gone. I don't know. Maybe it was slow motion. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I mean, they, they, they couldn't do anything. It was, it was a miracle. I mean, it was a sovereign hand of God. And then in John chapter 8, 58, 59, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. That's the name for God. He just, I am that I am. He is the eternal I am. He just is. He's eternal. Jesus says, I am. I'm the eternal God. Well, that's blasphemy. Every Jew thought that for a man to say I am is blasphemy. Worthy of death. And so verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. And so passed by. You know, Judas had seen a few of these kind of things. Very possibly been on the scene. Recall that even when they came to arrest Jesus, what happened? Well, when he introduced himself as I am, they all went flying backwards. 
onto the ground, as seen in John 18, 6. So perhaps, very possibly, I don't know this for sure, but a lot of the commentators surmise that perhaps Judas was thinking, once again, Jesus would somehow evade his enemies. And this would be a win-win. Jesus would escape, he would have the cash, and uh, life would go on. But this development of Jesus being condemned to death was not what he expected. And he suddenly felt remorse. And being remorseful, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, indeed, he had. Indeed, that's a true confession. He had. Emotionally, he was remorseful. Intellectually, he admitted his sin, but this was not repentance. A different word is used here, meaning to regret than that which is normally used in reference to true repentance. Repentance literally means to have a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. You see, repentance involves a fundamental change in the core of a person's thinking towards God. Repentance says, I am wrong and God is right and aligns with God's truth. Now recall that Pharaoh, in the midst of experiencing the plagues in the Old Testament, uh, repeatedly said, I have sinned. I've sinned this time. And yet it is clear it was never true repentance. Now when people are hurting emotionally, they might say all kinds of things. But that does not necessarily mean it signifies a true change of heart Toward God. And uh, God alone knows the hearts of people. We can't, we can't tell sometimes the difference between a, a, a sinning Peter and a sinning Judas. That's why God alone is a judge, ultimately. Now, we are fruit inspectors. And we kinda, if fruit involves kind of looking at things as a pattern over, over time. Uh, God knows, uh, and God alone is the ultimate judge. The Bible differentiates between godly sorrow in keeping with true repentance from worldly sorrow that produces death. Godly sorrow is God-oriented. Worldly sorrow is self-oriented. It feels bad for self. Paul called on all people to respond with repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, is, kind of summarizes his ministry as seen in Acts 20, 21. Now, this is an important point regarding the nature of a true saving faith. A mere emotional response does not equal saving faith. That's why I'm always concerned when really young, and, and praise the Lord, the Bible doesn't set an age for, you know, when a person can have saving faith, But a lot of times we have seen young ones make a profession, and then when they become of age, when they really can stand on their own two feet, they use those feet to totally walk away from the faith. It's not just an emotional response. The Bible says, with the heart, we believe under righteousness. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. Praise the Lord for my mother, my father. Uh, You know, my mother probably wore out Bible story books on me. She made me memorize verses. I was forced to watch Billy Graham and the conviction that I felt as he preached the gospel. And uh, I remember I would say things in my heart, like we had John 3.16 in the front of our church. And I look at John 3.16 and say, God can't send me to hell because I believe. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, boy, praise the Lord for his mercy. I mean, I would go right out and live for the devil right after the church service. Uh, you know, once I really got saved, I was reading through Romans. And when I came to Romans 10, 9, and 10, it was like the trumpets went off. With the heart, one believes. Oh, that's what was missing. I saw it clear as day. My heart was never really aligned with God. Intellectually, I knew a lot of things, but my heart wasn't there. I have been in hospital rooms in times of crisis when the most worldly and ungodly people prayed some of the most sincere prayers I've ever heard in my life. And yet when the crisis was over, they go right on with their ungodly lives. Depravity is a really scary thing. Comedian Red Skelton in 1951 took a party of friends with him to Europe, where he was planning to perform in London. As they were flying over the Swiss Alps, three of the plane's engines failed. And the situation looked grave. You know what people began to do? Pray. Skelton went into one of his best comic routines to try and distract them. The plane was losing power and coming closer and closer to the mountain. At the last moment, the pilot spotted a clearing and was able to land the plane. Skelton broke the relieved silence by saying, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, you may now return to the evil habits you gave up 20 minutes ago. You know what? Those kind of games don't work with God. That's not true repentance. And people play games, acting sometimes like they can even fool God. But in the end, they are the ones that are exposed as true fools. You cannot fool God. And only fools try. The Bible clearly indicates that Judas was not saved. He said, well, he said he was a sinner. He felt remorse. He, you know, he, he's admitting his sin. Yeah, all that's true. But you know, the Bible says even the demons believe intellectually and they tremble emotionally. But yet their true heart allegiance is to Satan and they are not saved. A guilty conscience is not the same as true repentance. We find repeatedly Jesus emphasizing that Judas was not saved. Uh, John 6, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And then in Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then in John 17, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. Except, except the son of hell, the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. What a testimony he has here, uh, that is Judas, uh, even uh, coming from this depraved betrayer. I mean, he totally admitted the innocence of Christ. He admitted his guilt, but he in, this, in the same breath is admitting the innocence of Christ. I mean, if there was anything at all on Christ, he surely would have rationalized his behavior. But you know what? He had nothing. Abraham Lincoln... Those who look for the bad in people will surely find it. Yeah, that's generally true, right? You want to find some dirt on Pastor Dwight? Well, I'm sure there's volumes of it around somewhere. Certainly, the Lord knows all. 
But uh, here's the deal. They couldn't find it on Jesus because it wasn't there. And in saying he had betrayed innocent blood, he was in effect acknowledging that a curse was upon him. Back in the Old Testament, and the Jews should have known this, these scholars, cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. I mean, when you do this against an innocent person, it's a really serious matter. And all the people shall say, Amen. This verse had Judas's name written all over it. Perhaps Judas was hoping against hope that with this confession, these esteemed religious leaders would even yet pull back the reins on their evil agenda and not push forward for the death penalty. But alas, they were so hard and calloused that they did not care one bit about his conscience or the fact that Jesus was an innocent man. The chief priest and the elders said to Judas, What is that to us? You see to it. In effect, they said, That's your problem, not ours. They were totally indifferent. Now, it should have mattered to them. <clears throat> if Judas betrayed innocent blood, they have condemned innocent blood. That, that's the fact of the matter. And as noted, the Old Testament law pronounced a curse on anyone doing so. Verse 5, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. G- now, Judas didn't just throw these... Uh, 30 pieces of silver in the outer temple precincts. Uh, What uh, the Greek word there is hirion. Rather, he threw them into the inner sanctuary where only the priests were allowed to go. So they are going to have to deal with it. You see, the word used here for temple is the Greek word naos, which refers to the inner temple sanctuary. Judas intentionally threw the money where only the priest could retrieve it, as if to spite them and make them feel the pangs of guilt that so oppressed him. In effect, he was making them deal with it too. They too would have to deal with this blood money as they too were implicated in the matter. They too would be forced to handle this blood money. It was on their hands too. And then Judas went out and hanged himself. John Phillips says, Judas turned on his heel, rushed blindly away, and hurled himself headlong into a lost eternity. Clearly, this was suicide. If indeed Judas felt like he was cursed, perhaps he thought that his appropriate self-punishment was death by hanging. I mean, we do read back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who hangs is accursed of God. Those who betray innocent blood are cursed, and those who are hung. Judas was indeed, in effect, a doubly cursed man, guilty of the greatest crime in human history. In the Old Testament, Ahithophel was a type of Judas. He was a trusted advisor to King David. But then he betrayed him and proceeded uh, to go and hang himself. Death does not relieve guilt. Rather, it makes it permanent and intensifies it beyond comprehension. 
as Jesus repeatedly declared, hell is a place of eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, gotquestions.org says, uh, the Bible mentions six specific people who committed suicide. Abimelech, Saul, Saul's armor bearer, Ahithophel, Zimri, and Judas. Five of these men were noted for their wickedness. The exception is Saul's armor bearer. Nothing is said of his character. Some consider Samson's death an instance of suicide because he knew his actions would lead to his death. But Samson's goal was to kill Philistines, not himself, although he realized that too was inevitable. Let's talk about suicide for just a minute. Suicide is always a terrible thing. It is estimated that about 800,000 people commit suicide every year. Suicide is self-murder. And, you know, when people are really suffering terribly physically, you, you can almost rationalize things. But every human being is made in the image of God and belongs to God. No one has the right to murder anyone. I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm not talking about war. I'm talking about suicide. The Bible says God is the giver of life. He both gives and takes away. Psalm 31.15 says of God, My times are in your hands. John MacArthur says, Uh, says, suicide is self-murder and is rebellion against God's sovereign right over life and death. It's an act of sin and unbelief, a clear violation of the sixth commandment. So the question is, can a Christian commit suicide? And the answer is yes. Yes. Christians can and do still sin, and sometimes grievously. Even Christians can get into a really dark place where the devil has his way with them. Peter, in addressing Christians, and that's clearly the context, says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, busybody. So Peter says, don't do this. But in saying so indicates it is possible for a Christian to potentially be guilty of it. Just as sure as a Christian could be guilty of being a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody, they could just as well potentially be a murderer. And that includes the sin of self-murder. But we are commanded not to do this. Now Matthew says Judas hanged himself, but Acts chapter 1 adds more detail. We read there in Acts chapter 1, Now this man, speaking of Judas, purchased a field with the wages of his iniquity, so to speak. I mean, it was his money that was used. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So this field is called in their own language, Akel Dama. That is field of blood. When you put it all together, apparently Judas hung himself. But then perhaps the weak limb of the tree broke, and falling headlong, his inners burst open. Some suggest that perhaps because of the Passover feast, his body was not found for some time. And in that climate, it quickly decomposed, resulting in it becoming bloated and having his intestines gush out. Whatever the specifics, it was a ghastly scene. Verse 6, But the chief priest took the silver pieces. So they picked them up. You know, they're, in the, they're all in the place where only the priest can go. The priest had to pick them up. And uh, so they took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful, not lawful to put them into the treasury. 
because they are the price of blood. This represents the religious height of hypocrisy. By admitting this was blood money, they in effect were admitting their own guilt. Now they had no problem taking the money out of the temple treasury to pay Judas, the betrayal money. But now they have scruples, they have some religious convictions about putting it back in. Don't care to take it out, can't put it back in. In doing so, they testified of their own guilt and that this truly was hypocritical, dirty business. Moody Bible Commentary, the leaders once again strained out a gnat in their caution to use Judas' blood money correctly. They swallowed a camel by orchestrating Jesus' death. Their hearts were stained deeply with sin. But outwardly, outwardly, they were very concerned about being ceremonially clean. The great sin of these religious leaders, as consistently brought out by Jesus, was their hypocrisy. And I think before God, there's nothing more offensive than religious hypocrisy. For them, it was all about outward formalities. But God is first and foremost concerned about the heart. Evidently, their concern was an application of Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 18, which says, You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Morally contaminated offerings were not to be presented to the Lord, as that was an offensive abomination. In refusing to put this blood money into the temple treasury, they were actually admitting that behind it was sinful activity that vitally involved them. Legalism is so inconsistent, so hypocritical. On the one hand, it is so strict with all things lawish. Don't defile the temple. Oh, no, it'd be bad, 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 bad. Yet on the other hand, completely overlooking the grossest of sins in condemning this innocent man. Self-deception is a terrible thing, especially religious deception. This is an interesting uh, quote. Better listen to this one. Eve found the serpent more trustworthy than God, not because of its credentials, but because the serpent said what Eve wanted to hear. That's the essence of self-deception. These religious leaders were very self-deceived. Verse 7, And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to buy strangers in. Now, instead of putting it back into the temple treasury, they decided to use it for a noble, charitable cause. Now, isn't that thoughtful? I mean, a nice humanitarian gesture. Should we give them a little credit? Nah. Uh, but I think that's where they, where they were coming from. Oh, we, you know, this is blood money. It wouldn't be right to put it just back. Let's use it for a good cause, a good community cause here. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea, brother. Let's do that. So they decided to use this blood money. I mean, really, it was Judas's money that he threw into the, the inner sanctuary. Uh, they decided to uh, use it to buy a potter's field, which would be used to bury strangers. Now, a potter's field was where they dug up clay to make pots and so forth. Nelson's study Bible says, Originally, this plot of ground was known as the potter's field, a place where potters dug for clay. Consequently, it was full of holes, which would have made it easy to bury people who had no family tombs. I mean, in those days, uh, you couldn't just call the mortuary and say, Hey, fly the body back home, 
right? I mean, it had to be disposed of right there. Uh, we need a place to do that. Oh, this will be, be a good thing. Verse 8, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So uh, it was called the field of blood, as noted also in Acts 1, 19. Matthew now is writing about 25 years later, and he notes that this field at this time was commonly known as the field of blood, indicating that it was common knowledge. It was generally known that it had been purchased with blood money. In the end, you see, these religious leaders really didn't fool anyone. Again, MacArthur says, And by that name, field of blood, the entire city testified to Jesus' innocence, acknowledging that he had been falsely accused, falsely condemned, and falsely executed. Common knowledge throughout the whole city. Verse 9, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, this is a paraphrased quote taken from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, which prophetically depicted this very scene related to Judas betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver, then throwing it into the house of the Lord, which was then used to buy a potter's field. All of these things are represented in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Notice what, uh, let me put the quote up there, Zechariah 11. Uh, then I said to them, and of course, uh, Zechariah is kind of playing out a parable here at this point, back here in the Old Testament. Uh, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That, that princely price they set on me. Get that. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It was used to pay the potter to get the field. Note the sarcasm when it says, that princely price they set on me. Was it, a, was it the price of a prince? No. It was the, the price of a slave in the Old Testament. So this is really sarcastically saying, they didn't value me at all. Truly, he was despised and rejected of men. Amazingly, this is shown to be a prophecy about the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given 500 years in advance. Note the precision, as it names the exact amount by which he would be betrayed. They are really uh, three precise prophecies here. Regarding Christ. Number one, the exact mount, uh, 30 pieces of silver, is given for Christ. Number two, this money was thrown into the temple. And number three, it went to a potter to purchase his field. But note that Matthew says this was a fulfillment of that which was spoken by Jeremiah and not by Zechariah. Now, <laughs> this has caused no end of discussion. Did Matthew make a mistake? Slip in memory? No, I don't think so. Certainly there's no mistake. Now there are several possible explanations. And by the way, I've often said this. When the commentators really don't know, there's lots of ink. Let me write 15 pages showing you the right view. Uh, but let me just uh, mention a few things here. 
One explanation is that Matthew blends several Old Testament themes related to both Zechariah and Jeremiah, but lists them as one. And since Jeremiah is the more prominent prophet, he names him. And by the way, that's not totally uncommon. Uh, For example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we have a quote from the prophets, which is a combination quote from both Malachi and Isaiah. So a note there. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's from Malachi. Everybody knows that's from Malachi. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's from Isaiah. So you've got a combination of things tied to prophecy here. Uh, Kind of put forth in a unit of one. Maybe something like that's what's in view here. But he's simply uh, emphasizing the more prominent of the two, which is Jeremiah. So perhaps, perhaps uh, this is a combination of two prophecies uh, thematically under one umbrella. Others suggest that the key is found in the word spoken. Spoken by Jeremiah, suggesting that perhaps Jeremiah spoke it orally, but later then Zechariah actually wrote it down. Well, maybe, maybe there was an oral tradition carried on and Zechariah then wrote it down. However, many of the commentators do end up with what seems to be the best view, and in my mind as well, and that is that the Jewish division of the Old Testament had three parts. The law, the writings, and the prophets. You see, they didn't have chapter and verse divisions like we do. That didn't happen until the 1500s in the church age. In this threefold division, the Jews referred to the law, which, you know, the first five books of, of, the, of the Bible, uh, the law of Moses, uh, which uh, is commonly called the law of Moses, and then we have the writings, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And then the prophets. In that division was included, they didn't have, this, didn't have it divided exactly like we do, by the way. And uh, in the prophets division, they had Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. All in that division. So often the Jews would cite the first book of a particular section, indicating they were quoting somewhere from that division. For example, note in Luke 24, verse 44. You like my seminary class? Welcome to seminary. Uh, Luke 24, 44. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, one division, the prophets, and the writings. No, 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 the Psalms concerning me. You see, here Jesus named the Psalms as representing the entire section commonly known as the writings. Psalms was the first book in that scroll, so it represents that whole section. Likewise, Jeremiah was the first book listed in the section That included Zechariah. So although Jeremiah is named, in view is actually the quote from Zechariah, which is part of that whole greater division of Scripture. Uh, Believers study Bible has this note. As evidence in the Talmud, the ancient order of the prophetic books puts Jeremiah first. 
And thus Matthew quotes from the prophets collectively as from Jeremiah. So in short, when it says spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, this is a way of saying recorded in the prophetic books, of which Jeremiah is shorthand form for saying out of that section, we have this quote that is fulfilled. So once again, Matthew zeroes in on the fact that Jesus' entire life, ministry, details surrounding his death, were all in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' whole life was fulfilled prophecy, making it abundantly clear that he is the true Messiah. So strong is this reality that Revelation 19.10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy always has Jesus as its theme, ultimately. Jesus is the grand subject of the book. And as we think about Judas and his tragic demise, some have suggested perhaps in taking his own life, he was somehow hoping to make atonement for this great sin which he admitted to. But as we note from Scripture, there is only one death that can bring about atonement. And that's the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Strong emphasis in the Scriptures, Hebrews 1.3, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had by himself purged our sins. And then in chapter 10, by one offering, that's the cross, by one offering he has perfected, for how long? Forever, those who are being sanctified. Indeed, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. And finally, as we consider the contrast between Judas and Peter, we note that all is well that ends well. But if it doesn't end well, it's forever not well. In the end, the ultimate issue is how we end and where we end up. Peter stumbled badly, terribly badly. But as a man of true faith, he was raised back up and he ended well. In contrast, Judas had no true faith and as hardened in unbelief, when he fell, it was irreversible. In the book of Proverbs, it says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. And again, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. You know, people tend to die as they live. And people who play games with God end up in a bad place. Voltaire was a famous infidel who lived in the 1700s. He bragged, it took 12 men to start Christianity. One, speaking of himself, one will destroy it. Well, last check. He's long been gone. And Christianity is still here. You know what? He dared to go so far as to call Christ a cursed wretch. But when he came to die, how did it go? Well, he cried out on his deathbed, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. In contrast, the famous evangelist, Dwight L. Moody, as he was dying, said, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go. All is well 
that ends well. But how you end is all determined by what you do with Jesus in the here and now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Will God help us to end well? Let's stand and have our closing song.